these models are going to get better. They're going to do more amazing things. It's an exciting time for us to be in. But as these models get generally better, this problem of like, all right, well, when it fails, knowing how it fails and doing everything we can to like inform the user and protect against it, it's going to become even, even bigger because we're going to start trusting these things more. How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Hello and welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. On this episode, we have a very special guest, Chris Van Pelt, the co-founder of Weights and Biases, the co-founder of Crowdflower and Figure 8, and somebody who's dedicated his career optimizing ML workflows and teaching ML practitioners, making machine learning more accessible to all. Chris, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't you start us off with uh, what attracted you to machine learning? Uh, yeah, this was quite a while ago, um, but I, I you know, I remember all the way back in, in college, studying computer science uh, in the early 2000s, talking about uh, machine learning. But in my college years, it wasn't something that I, I immersed myself um, that deeply into. It wasn't until uh, a little later, kind of early in my career, I moved to the Bay Area in 2006 to work at a startup called PowerSet. Uh, and PowerSet was a startup that was really, it was ahead of its time. And that was where I first got immersed in the world of, of uh, machine learning. So at PowerSet, we were oddly enough doing like a lot of like natural language processing, which is a hot topic these days. Uh, but we were using a very different approach, uh, a rules-based kind of heuristic approach to language modeling. Uh, and we had licensed technology from Xerox PARC and uh, brought on a lot of these uh, very uh, learned professionals, PhDs in the field, uh, tackling very hard problems around language understanding and how we could apply that to search and make a, a better search product. It was at that company I also met Lucas Bewald, who um, I've now founded two companies with. Uh, and that is what kind of really launched my my career in in ai and ml my my co-founder lucas actually you know studied machine learning and had had been working with with models um kind of through throughout college and and in his career and and i'm the i'm the like full stack web developer that kind of landed in this in this hot and exciting space that um has had the the blessing of being able to create tools for um who I consider some of the, the most impactful and, and interesting uh, engineers out there kind of building the next generation of, of products and solutions on top of this stuff. So exciting times for sure. I'm glad I landed at that, that startup uh, in the early 2000s. Awesome. How would you say that your background uh, as a full stack engineer sort of prepared you for the machine learning world? Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the core thing what I consider to be like most important when you're when you're an engineer building products is thinking about the the end user experience, like how how is the world going to interact with this thing, 
and uh, I think the the same is true and often a lot trickier with with machine learning models. Like the second you introduce one of these models, you suddenly have this this thing that's like right some percentage of the time, and like by design, it's going to be like wrong. So thinking about how end users are going to experience that or uh, ways in which you could potentially make the end user experience better when they need to get involved and kind of um, handle those cases where the, the model is wrong, uh, I, I think has made me hopefully a, a, a better engineer and developer when it comes to, to actually bringing these, these machine learning models into the real world. Nice. Uh, yeah, as a machine learning practitioner, I get to use my favorite quote like once a week, uh, all models are wrong, some are useful. Uh, George Box, he was a statistician. I don't know if he was necessarily talking about machine learning, but it's still a fun one to get to say. I'm glad I got to just say it also. Um, so zooming forward a little bit um, to weights and biases, which is just an absolutely incredible tool. Um, I've been using it for better part of like five years for every part of my machine learning uh, uh, you know, life cycle for my projects. I use it for a bunch of personal projects. I'm now using it in industry. Why don't you tell us in, in your own words as, as a co-founder, you know, what, what, is, what is Weights and Biases? Yeah, you bet. So uh, our mission at Weights and Biases is to build the world's best developer tools for machine learning engineers. So we're really interested in building really good tools. I've always been a fan of tools, like to have a good tool, to have the right tool for the job, like in the real world is there's nothing better. Even the, like I don't do a lot of handiwork, but like going to Home Depot and looking at the different actual tools is, is quite exhilarating for me. I've always, I've always enjoyed that. So uh, Weights and Biases is, a, is building tools for uh, machine learning engineers. So the, the kinds of tools that a, a machine learning engineer uh, needs, it was pretty obvious in the early days. Um, and uh, as we've grown, it's become more nuanced. There's like little pockets of the, the problem space that we're always kind of going, hey, is there a better way to do this? How can we create a better tool? Um, class of problems are like, well, you need to keep track of what data you're training on, right? It's always when you're modeling, the data is, is king. So we, we created a number of tools to just have a solid understanding of data lineage, data versioning, being able to dive in and visualize, understand the data uh, and then there's a lot of experimentation in machine learning. So when you're training a machine learning model, it's not just the source code. As a you know traditional software developer, it's like, all right, I've got GitHub. I know like what the truth is, and I have CI/CD running. Um, it's going to be the data, and it's going to be you know some hyperparameters, some like command line arguments that you passed into the program that you're running, and then ultimately the weights and the biases that you're creating uh, when you've trained a model. So. Weights and Biases is an end-to-end MLOps platform that helps engineers keep track of all of these things and then can serve as a system of record for their day-to-day -day development and, and understanding of how these models are performing and how they can make them perform better. Very cool. Um, yeah, the amazing thing for me is I've gotten to see how Weights and Biases has expanded over time and, and my usage of it also. Um, I started out using it really just to like keep track of things, keep track of experiment results. I think seeing loss curves was very illuminating for me. I guess I had seen it in fast AI, but there was something about seeing multiple runs 
uh, all in one all in one place, which was really nice. Um, toying around with sweeps and creating reports, all of it. Uh, tables is incredible. Haven't gotten into Weave yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, and ML prompts also, which is uh, really nice. Um, and speaking of, yeah, nothing better than a good tool, right? I mean, the right tool for the job. It's amazing how seamless it can be. And also when you don't have the right tool, how frustrating it can be when you're trying to you know, do something. Like don't try to hammer in something, you know, you get a hammer, right? Um, from your perspective, how have the goals of weights and biases changed since, uh, since the onset? Yeah, in the beginning, uh, right, this is like 2016. This is a time I'm sure much of your audience uh, could remember, or, or uh, maybe they were in the space at this point. But, you know, TensorFlow was really the the main player in the framework space. PyTorch really wasn't a thing. Uh, computer vision was the the use case that everyone was talking about and excited about. This was a time when, you know, self-driving cars um, was the, the primary topic around like AI or applying ML. Uh, the core problem that we set out to solve in the early days was just like keeping track of your experiments. So state of the art at that time for just keeping track of your modeling effort was like a Google spreadsheet or, you know, an Excel spreadsheet. So, right. That was like a pretty low bar. Um, and uh, we just set out to, to make a tool that, that was like really easy to keep track of, of the experiments that you're doing. Like originally in the very beginning, we didn't think putting a whole bunch of charts into the product was, was necessarily needed. Like the main problem we were solving was just like keep track of, of the actual experiments and maybe what the final loss value was or the final like accuracy value was. Um, and then as we added more rich visualization features, we saw users love it. So we really doubled down there. Um, the ways in which we've expanded was, you know, we finally found, we convinced ourselves we had product market fit, that we had created something that was useful when we got, you know, teams like, like OpenAI to actually use the product for, for work that they were doing or to at a research institute on um, a lot of the robotics and, and autonomous vehicle work. So uh, then it became like, all right, well, what other problems are there? And this was literally just going out and talking to our customers or users and, and hearing where their, their pain points um, were. So the sweeps offering inside of Weights and Biases where we make it like really easy to run a hyperparameter search. Initially, that wasn't obvious. It was kind of like, well, there's like good tools on the market that do that. We don't think we're going to magically come out and have the greatest hyperparameter algorithm that's going right. to save everybody money. It was just like, let's just make it as easy and as, as pleasant as possible to run a hyperparameter search. Um, and, you know, since features like our model registry uh, reports was, you know, an interesting set of features that came out of uh, the reality of like, all right, well, everyone's uh, report or like the end result is like very different. The the kinds of things you want to understand and know about when you're doing computer vision, very different than if you're making like a financial prediction model or um, some arbitrary classifier. So we built this like very flexible platform to actually communicate these graphs and charts and results um, around to customers. And the, you know, the product continues to evolve. I think most recently the, the move from what 
when we started for the past like five years, it was always like, okay, you build a model. Like maybe you, you take like ResNet or, or um, some existing base model, but you're gonna like fine tune it and you're gonna do all of this stuff in house. Now it's often, yeah, we'll just call out to like OpenAI's API or some other API and the kinds of problems and things you, you uh, need to be concerned about are different, but they're, they're similar in a lot of ways as well, right? These are all um, machine systems that, that have this probabilistic nature that are gonna be wrong how do we evaluate and how do we, you know, try to, to make the user experience as good as possible, um, across it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a certain flexibility that's really nice with, uh, weights and biases that you can kind of use it for many different, um, yeah, many different use cases. Speaking of like, you know, creating tools and sometimes you have the intended use for tools, What's like a really unique use of weights and biases that I guess when you were creating it, you never really thought that it would be used for it? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the weights and biases platform itself is it's pretty versatile in terms of the core, you know, as you're building a product, you're like, all right, well, what are the atoms of this thing? Um, and gosh, I remember we we built this feature a few years ago where we let people completely define their own visualizations. So we built it on top of uh, Vega, uh, which there's like a Altair is the Python framework that works with this, this visualization framework. Under the hood, it's all like D3, which is a very cool technology. But uh, we wired up Vega such that users could define their own custom visualizations. And uh, they could wire that up to any of the atoms in the in the weights and biases API, kind of these units of of data. And one of our engineers uh, actually wired things up and defined a custom visualization that was actually like a role playing game, hmm. which I thought was was awesome. A complete misuse cool. of of <laughs> both the the core Vega spec and the underlying data model, but uh, a very cool demo nonetheless. Very I think, cool. uh, you know, in the, the actual use cases of weights and biases, I've, I've been able to see some like very cool use cases of, of machine learning over the years. Uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, technology around agriculture. So putting like computer vision models onto big tractors and combines and, and reducing the amount of, of pesticides or chemicals that need to be applied to control weeds in a field. Uh, connect, you know, has a massive impact on the environment. It's really cool tech. Like I went and saw one yeah. of the tractors and they have like little NVIDIA boxes, like on the combine doing it. Uh, and also not one, you know, it's not the first place your mind goes where you're like, how could we use AI or ML to, um, to make some impact in the world? But, uh, yeah, the work we've done with John Deere and, and Blue River around that has been really cool to see. Very cool. Um, in terms of all of the things that have been accomplished from weights and biases, I'm sure that you guys have a nice roadmap ahead. <laughs> um, what are some of the things that you're most excited about for the future uh, for weights and biases? Yeah, so uh, I think the most exciting thing is is this next generation of tooling for uh, really the, the next generation of, of AI and ML engineers. What's happened in the last uh, year, year and a half with the explosion of ChatGPT and, and now every data science conference you go to is, is definitely going to have the words like LLM or, or Gen AI 
uh, somewhere on a, on a poster. It's been just wild to see uh, the whole industry shift to this um, excitement around these large uh, models. Uh, the team is, is working on, all right, well, what does a product look like where you're not necessarily doing a lot of modeling in-house, you're, you're leveraging these tools, doing more prompt engineering, doing more uh, like the retrieval augmented generation space, kind of hooking these tools together and with uh, kind of agents and these more general purpose um, uses of, of LLMs, like what would the world's best tooling look like for that new world. That's what the team's been um, working on over the the last like year, um, and we're we're excited to to finally release that in the in the next uh, couple of months here, and continue to to iterate on it um, as we as we found with our existing product. It's like you know we we make a swing, we try to make something. As, as good as we, we think it can be. And then through actually having people use it and, and solve problems, we, we uh, can iterate and make it great and delightful. So that's really the, the area where we're focusing a lot on. I think, you know, one of the big shifts there is that from the start of the company, we're selling a product to machine learning engineers. These are people that understand the underlying math. They understand, you know, probabilities and, and kind of what that means from a, um, operational standpoint. In this new world, we have a lot of just traditional software developers that are now consuming these APIs and building right. products on top of them. So one of the challenges is like, how do we convey these these core um, ideas to this new audience in a in a way that enables them to to kind of build uh, better products without a lot of the there's a lot of new, it's tricky, right? There's going to potentially be biased. You need to really think carefully about, okay, when this thing fails, how's it going to, how's it going to fail? You want to like fail, um, in a way that's least disruptive to the, to the end user. Um, right. so being able to build tools for this space, it's, it's really exciting. And there's, you know, hundreds of other companies doing the same thing. So we've got a, a lot of work to do and we need to move quickly, but it's an exciting space to be in. Yeah. That's definitely one of the most challenging things with machine learning versus like say traditional programming. If it doesn't work for traditional programming, you just get an error, right? I mean, usually most of the time, unless it's like something really weird, but machine learning, you'll get an answer, but it won't be right, <laughs> you know? And with an API call and like you, you will generate text, you will generate some image, but will it be useful for, you know, what you're, what you're actually trying to do and understanding sort of the I guess the responsibility that people have when they're creating things like that it's it's a real transition and it's tempting like you can make a cool demo today yes. like it's been like so fun as an engineer having access to this technology and to delight myself when I make something and I'm like whoa it did that I can't believe it did it right uh, but that demo where you then like kind of script it and you're showing your friends this cool thing you made it like does not account for all of the weird edge cases and things you haven't thought about and ways in which another user is going to interact with this thing. And if you just throw that out there, you're not even going to know really if it's, if it's working or not. The, the closest proxy you'll have is like, are people sharing it and more people like using it? But uh, even thinking about, all right, well, how do I get user feedback 
Which I mean, this goes back to uh, that first job I had here in the Valley getting into uh, machine learning. Like when it's a search engine, how do you know if your like machine learning algorithm that that return results is any good? Right. Well, a good proxy is like, are people clicking on the results? Um, but it's, it's a subtle, gnarly problem. Uh, and you need to really think about it and have rigorous ways to evaluate and understand if you're getting better or worse, because you're going to have to change the prompt. You're going to upgrade the model. You're going to change things about your product and you need a, a way to actually measure is this thing, um, good or bad without just sending it out to your users and making them kind of yell, Hey, what the heck this sucks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And speaking of the ability to create demos, I'm, it's maybe, I'm not sure if it's overset or anything, but something I've been finding myself saying, it's easy to create a demo. Um, it's hard to create something for production and it's even harder to create something at scale, right? Something can work a dozen times, but is it going to work a thousand times? How's it going to, or a million times? How's it going to work when there's multiple users at the same time? How's it going to work on all of these edge cases? And I think that what we're seeing is that, especially with this generative AI, you can't even test all, all of these things. You can't even fully check it for like prompt injection, let's say, right? Because until it's out there and people are starting to use it for all these unintended uses, that's when you start to see all these crazy things come out, but it's already kind of too late, right? Because it's in it's in production. Someone is using it. They have, um, you know, it's already exp it's already exposed. It's already out. I mean, we're seeing lots of things like that happen where people are putting out generative chatbots for their customer service, and it's just like that's a terrible idea um, to do that fully to just be fully relying on that. And there's obviously other examples too. Um, but yeah, speaking of evaluation, it's really it's really hard. How do you know? if your product is, is working correctly. So yeah, something like search, it's very difficult, right? You might want, like you could quickly get results, but are they the right results? Um, recommendation engines, right? You can quickly get results, but are, are, they, are they the right results? I think evaluation will always remain a problem, um, especially because I think people put too much weight on benchmarks as well. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know what your feeling is on that. Uh, you think the benchmarks about that are very generic, right? So then, you know, someone will make an announcement and say, like, hey, we're better than GPT-4 in, like, MMLU or, I'm not even sure if that's one of the correct acronyms of the, you know, 30 <laughs> core tests enough. that people are, are throwing out there. Um, and there's not, you know, there's, those are important. It's good to have some general set of benchmarks for different things that we're testing, but they're very general and they're never going to tell you how good is this thing going to be for my specific use case. You're the only one who can answer that question. Right. And it could be hard to, to answer it. So like going back to the, the search engine ranking algorithm, uh, well, how do you do that? Well, it turns out you hire a bunch of people who are trained often with a big manual on here's what here's how we define relevance which is already a pretty fuzzy subject like how relevant is something to a given user's query right and then you have them label the data you look at a whole bunch of queries and results and you have them on a scale of like one to four or one to five say how relevant a given result is for a query and even then you're like okay well you have to the query could be ambiguous it's hard to understand what a user's intent is when they query 
these problems are very similar in in the chat space or or having a user ask for something and then when the ultimate result comes out you have to you need some way to measure well okay did this satisfy the the user's question we see it you know in chat gpt itself we can we can give a little thumbs up or a thumbs down most people probably don't interact in that in that right. way when a user does it's a really strong signal right so you should probably incorporate that data back into your your process and and use it to to make the model better uh, but yeah i mean the good news is companies have been working on this problem for 20 years uh the bad news is every indiv every individual has like a slightly different definition of good for whatever they're doing. So there right. isn't just this magic, I can buy this product and it's gonna like solve this problem for me. What you need, you need like really good tools to help you ask the question and solve the problem, which is you know why we built weights and biases and, and hope we can really help a lot of people um, put this rigorous process in place to, to be able to build a robust data science machine learning function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that weights and biases has helped me it's so like you try to get this one metric, right? Like you try to get like, oh, okay, F1 score is above 0.8, right? But it doesn't really matter that much. It's sometimes it's about how it's performing on different segments of your data. Um, and I found that tables has helped me a lot. I've been able to look at different probability distributions for different classes and also just to see where there's er to see where there's errors and to sort of segment the data and then see, okay, in this particular type of conversation that I'm analyzing, um, you know, this is what I want to be looking for. Okay, I need to, these are like, it helps me with error analysis, basically, and to zoom in on the, zoom in on those problems. Because often, yeah, it's not just about one accuracy metric or what, you know, one particular thing, you have to sort of have this ability to zoom in and zoom out. And that's what, that's one thing like weights and biases has really helped me with. Yeah, I mean, this idea is like, you know, confusion matrix of like, I'm making a model to predict like whether or not you have COVID. Like if it, uh, like false positives versus false negative. It's it's like different for the use case. Like I would, if I tell someone they have COVID and they don't actually have it, probably not as bad as me telling someone they don't have COVID when they actually have it. Right. So how do you want to optimize your model for these cases? What can you do to uh, really prevent that? Like the case you don't want. Right. right, these broad like F one score eighty percent. Yeah, it means nothing. How many times am I going to be like lying to my user about this thing that's really important? Right. Um, yeah, it's whenever the cost of errors aren't equal, and it's always that case, <laughs> right? Because you, you the the cost of errors are never the same. Um, so therefore, the me the metric can not, can't just be this overall metric where you're treating true positives and false positives or whatever tr you know true negatives and whatever all of your all of your combinations in your confusion matrix each box matters differently and you have to be able to somehow incorporate that and the only way you can really do that is by you know segmenting it. Uh, you Especially when you're iterating, like like you know maybe I I moved F one score from eighty percent to ninety percent. That's a no, of course, let's ship that model. Well, wait, like look at those those cases. Did the cases get better or worse? Because maybe overall you got better, but now you're like way worse on the, the false positive or whatever case. And that's, that's really important to know. Right, 
or you'll just get better at the majority class and then you won't even ever detect the rarer class and you'll think, oh, okay, yeah, my, my model's better. I know, people just want to know, is this is model A better than model B? But there's always some trade-off. Um, it's never, very rarely do you ever get it like across the board that one thing is better, you know, categorically better th than another model. You know, I mean, like these models are going to get better. They're going to do more amazing things. It's an exciting time for us to be in. But as these models get generally better, this problem of like, all right, well, when it fails, knowing how it fails and doing everything we can to like inform the user and protect against it, it's going to become even, even bigger because we're going to start trusting these things more. Like I de we'll never get rid of hallucination because of, by definition of the way these things work. There's, you know, there's some weird corner case or something weird with the data that's going to like be really bad. It's very important to understand that and, and do what right. we can to prevent users from, um, having a, a bad experience because of it yeah a hundred percent yeah i know i have always find it so funny like companies say we have eliminated hallucinations if any if you've said that then don't trust that company because they don't <laughs> know what they're talking about it's like eliminating bias it's like no you have not eliminated bias you can try to minimize it but you cannot eliminate it and if you do if you think that you have then you didn't really fully think through your problem <laughs> yeah um, so just like looking at this space and, you know, obviously like the last year and a half has been this hype cycle, right? But you've been in, you've been in this industry, you know, since like 2007, were there any other like big revolutionary, like step function things like this that really created such hype? Have you ever seen something like this, like ChatGPT has created? Uh, not to this level. I mean, this is astronomical hype and it like continues i kind of thought like all right people will chill but there's still like every conference i go to every company i talk to they're um they're you know deploying a lot of resources to figure out how generative ai is going to change how they function how the world functions so um this is definitely unlike anything i've ever experienced i'd say the closest is is maybe the yeah the the hype around autonomous vehicles really like when we first started weights and biases it was clear that okay deep learning was really starting to to work like the things that the demos i was seeing how how good these models were getting at just taking in pixels and and spitting out like what everything in that image was or putting bounding boxes around important objects was i remember seeing examples of being like wow i did not think we'd be able to do this when, when we were able to do it. Right. Um, and I think you, you saw, you know, a ton of money go into a ton of different companies trying to make self-driving cars and predictions of having a self-driving car before, um, you know, well before we actually were able to have it. But, you know, now I'm, I'm going around the streets of San Francisco and, and seeing the, the Waze cars drive by without someone in them or, or taking rides in them, which is trippy. Like, You've it's, been in it? It's here. It took longer than um, than any of us uh, had hoped, but it's it's here. Um, You've taken one? I think, yeah, yeah, a couple times. It's cool. Creepy? It's very cool. Yeah, definitely a little creepy. Uh, 
and I've seen it's gotten into situations. I love like writing in a ways because you like see some situation and you'll be like, I want to get like a bag of popcorn and be like, what's it going to do here? <laughs> We've got like construction cones, a homeless person doing something crazy. Let's like see. And it's, I've always been um, pleasantly surprised. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's creepy. Are, are, there, ste- are, are there steering wheels or there's no steering wheel? Yeah, there's a steering wheel. You can even oh, okay. sit in the driver's seat. Apparently, you have to like keep your hands off of the. I haven't done that, but yeah. Yeah, every time I'm like, I get in usually in the back seat or something, and I'll take like a video because I'm still, you know, and you see the wheel turning and it's going, and you know. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I guess it works. It needs to stay within a certain area, though, right? It can't go outside of a certain area. Is that how it is? Uh, it, is it takes some weird routes. Oh, like okay. it's definitely like its route planner is not just like Google Maps. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know how they license it with the city or if there's certain like no-go zones. Um, but uh, they also like the tech on those things is is nuts. That is not a cheap vehicle to to operate, and there's lots of lidars and all these things that Elon doesn't like. Uh, but you know, turns out it makes the problem a lot more um, doable. But yeah, take in whatever yeah. senses you need to take in to get that mm-hmm. done. You don't have to have it be some all-knowing omniscient sort of model it can it can take in multiple senses um yeah that's cool i I need to look into it even more i don't know if i would take it or not i guess eventually that'll become commonplace you do it enough you'll be exposed to it you'll be you'll stop taking vote you know stop taking videos it's exciting man it's it's you should take it yeah i'll uh come to san francisco I'll, i'll get you a ride in one I appreciate it. I, I I would take I would take a ride with you in a in a driverless car. I would mm-hmm. do it. Um, very cool. So with all of this hype and everything that's happening in you know let's say natural language processing, but really just like the machine learning world, how do you view the gap between the hype and and the reality? So like what the promises of all of this stuff, and then like where we actually are. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm surprised that the, like, the we're we're still like peak hype from what right. I can see. So, you know, we're gonna reach, we're gonna hit the trough of disillusionment yes. at some point. This is the you know the Gartner hype cycle. Um, yep. I think, uh, you know, a big like this space moves so fast. Uh, you know, Waste and Biases has been around five years. The amount of change, you know, the transformer architecture, for instance, like wasn't a thing until 2017. And now that's basically the most popular architecture used in everything that from the self-driven cars to uh, these language models. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there'll be another architecture or changes to this architecture that proved to be even more fruitful. Um, The, yeah, the, well, I think the speed is jarring. And then when you get these big enterprise companies figuring out how to use this new thing, they're slow. Like they're still, you know, very much being cautious and figuring it out. Um, And, you know, we're just sitting, we're waiting for the number of transistors that NVIDIA can pack into their uh, <laughs> chips to go up, which it will. And then these models will get better. Uh, and uh, 
uh, I saw there was like an interview with with Sam Altman saying like, a lot of people think like oh we'll get this like AGI or even the couple weeks after ChatGPT blew up everyone was like oh my god this is gonna like change everything now it it, it takes it takes time it is the right. actual process of of finding the killer use cases for this and and making it a core part of what you're doing um, it it will take time I think we'll you look at like Y Combinator and the startups coming out of that now, like the majority are somehow connected to uh, this space. Um, what was the original question? <laughs> what are the challenges going to be? The best, yeah. No, the gap between the hype and the reality. Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, this is self-serving. One of the big gaps is just better tooling, like having visibility into how these things are performing and actually operationalizing it. Uh, you know, I think that's the, the thing that's happened is you can use like GPT-4, it does these amazing things, but it's slow and it's expensive yes. at scale. So then people are like, all right, well, yeah, we'll, we'll like take Llama 2 and, and like find well now you need to have a robust like ml ops process and practice to iterate on that model and understand its shortcomings and prevent all of these you know safety related issues right um so you know i think the gap now is like yeah there aren't a lot of push button managed solutions out there uh often the use cases of these things are so specialized and unique that you kind of need to build out some internal expertise and everyone's just kind of figuring that out now um so I guess uh, I'd expect all of this to get better, um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I can't offer a win it's, as soon as possible. It's it's definitely what we're we're working on, um, but it, it it's clear this is not going anywhere. And there's there's a ton of potential. Like I'm I'm delighted by just like ChatGPT on a daily basis and and thinking of ideas for how this could be applied to to different. Um, processes within organizations yeah a hundred percent it's a really good brainstorm partner you know you could give it some ideas it could really really helps out and you can have a nice little back and forth if it generates very you know very interesting ideas and then you were touching upon another interesting thing which was uh like the hardware that's involved with uh these systems and obviously there's an Nvi nvidia which is a huge player and then, you know, Google has their TPUs, and then there's like this new thing like LPU. It's very interesting to think that now there's hardware that's gonna be designed specifically for these use cases. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, can we get, can whoever, you know, those companies get the um, latency down to a point where the, you know, you can actually make an API call, let's say. I guess there'll still be some challenges there. Um, no matter what, as long as there's an API call involved. But if you're doing it, yeah, locally. You also made another really good point. It's like, I think people tend to, it's like a new idea, like a maximum viable product. They'll use ChatGPT to get like a really good version of something and then thinking, oh, then when we scale, we'll substitute it for Maestral or Llama or, you know, some other model. But it's not that simple. It's you know it it doesn't it's not just like a it's not really as simple as a plug and play. Um, yeah. So I guess along the same vein, 
What's an important question uh, that you believe remains unanswered in machine learning? We've been in the space long enough to see what's happening here, right? Like we played with GPT-2, we played with GPT-3. We thought these were cool. We were, you know, telling our friends and family about it and having them try it. Right. Um, it wasn't until the really instruction fine-tuned and ChatGPT stick stuff came out where it was like, whoa, this is really cool. Um, but you also, the models had gotten better at that point. So you just, like you can make, you just plot, plot that stuff out on a graph, like year thing was made and how good it was. Like the main limiting factor is, is the speed and cost of the chips running these things. And all indications are they get better if we're able to throw more computing power at them. So it's a, it's a waiting game. We're like just waiting essentially for Moore's law, which happens to be an exponentially uh, increasing phenomenon for these models to get better. Uh, so the question to me is, all right, well, when does that just mean we get AGI, right? I mean, this is a big question for like open AI. Like, could we just continue to scale this thing up and we have a model that's like generally, however we want to define generally, like more capable than humanity. Uh, that's a big unquestioned answer for me. It's something I think about a lot. Um, yeah. I think what's been really interesting in terms of unanswered or what I think will probably be some of the most interesting stuff in the next couple of years is all the, the multimodal um, work that's happening. So yeah. Gemini released their like million token contact length, which means now we can just throw videos in there and the stuff you can do with videos, pretty cool. Um, just in my own personal usage of ChatGPT, the image stuff has been amazing. Like I can take a picture of something I need transcribed or translated or uh, I want you to count calories in my refrigerator. Like it's, it's very cool what you can do just by yeah. adding imagery. And then if we throw audio and video, uh, the use cases, and then if we make it faster to get input and output into that thing, the use cases are boundless. Um, so I think that's a, it's a long winded way of saying the main problem here is just like more compute that's cheaper. Right. And this is why uh, NVIDIA stock is is going to the moon. You know? <laughs> Through the roof. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, it's like I saw it too. It's like I knew it was going to happen. Um, Should have gotten deeper into that. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, speaking, yeah. of AG <laughs> speaking of AGI, um, what do you, like, I think the thing, everyone has a different definition for it, right? Like, slightly, I think. Do you do you feel like you have a good definition for AGI or no? I don't have a good definition. What I want, I want it to like solve real science, you know, like solve right. some like hairy, hairy problems that our best scientists can't solve. Then it's like all right, right? Like it's, it's here. It's achi achievement unlocked. Yeah. It can do it. So that's like what some unsolved math problem, some new protein. Well, yeah, thing. I mean, Google—they recently, you know, had some a model like solve a proof that none of us could solve. So maybe it's here. 
Um, yeah, but if you look into it, they like had it do it like a thousand times, and then they had mathematicians review it, and they found like, oh, okay, the, a handful of times this actually worked. I think that I don't know. That's what, that's what I was reading about. But yes, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah, I think it's really yeah. I mean, a lot of people, way smarter than me, have spent a lot of time trying to define this. So um, I'm not going to even attempt it. But uh, it's it's one of those things where you probably you like know it when you see it. I don't right. know. I think it's you know it's going to be um, remarkable and scary, uh, but. It seems like, and I'll also say, like there's a long history of the machine learning world kind of over-promising and under-delivering when it comes to this stuff. So I, I would not be surprised if it takes us, you know, longer than the next generation of GPT here. But uh, right. I, I do think there's a reasonable likelihood that in my lifetime I get to see this, which is awesome scary yeah. but scary I mean like for wow sure. like I managed to be put on this earth uh, during a time when this evolved ape created this other thing that somehow surpassed but like it's just it's a very special time um, to to be alive and to have the privilege to be a part of the space and, and kind of see it happen is yeah pretty remarkable yeah absolutely it's like the most exciting time to be in machine learning. Um, changing gears a tiny bit. Um, so you kind of, uh, you've been involved in, you know, two successful machine learning companies. What does it take to sort of take part in something like entrepreneurship in a field like machine learning where there's so much uncertainty? What are some of the lessons th that you've learned? Uh, well, I think lesson number one, like you have to love what you're doing and specifically with like a start, it's like, well, you need to love the, the people that you're selling software to, right? The, the people you're solving, um, problems for. And, uh, for me, I mean, like machine learning, the, the intelligence, the thoughtfulness, the, the kinds of problems that can be solved with it just made it a um, something that I could get very passionate about and put a ton of energy into. There's a lot of like no one cares, especially in the beginning. Like you're building this thing, you think it's cool, you care a lot, you go out, you share it with people, and like most people really do not care. Um, so you need to uh, have grit to push through that to to stay positive, to, um, continue putting one foot in front of the other every day. I think, uh, you know, others have, have given that advice just around persistence and, and, uh, being able to, to keep trying. Um, but yeah, I guess, you know, for me, it's just like the main thing is you're going to, you can go to like a conference with your users and be energized that that would be like the main piece of advice. Uh, because if, if you don't have that, it's going to be really hard to, to keep going when, um, you, you haven't necessarily found that product market fit or, or, uh, success in the space. Right. How did you kind of like 
did you did you know when you hit product market fit? Is it a feeling? Is it was there something that clicked where where you had it, or it was just about having a certain number of users, a uh, certain value that users were getting? I feel like that's something that's very hard. Like a lot of startups struggle with understanding, like have I reached product market fit? Yeah. Uh, well, there's like you know first just getting users. So um, that's big, but it. Uh, there's a lot of things you could do on the internet, especially if you have millions of VC dollars that give you a bunch of users that you know aren't necessarily ones that will stick around or or be all that valuable. Right. And Lucas and I have always approached uh, entrepreneurship like as a a small business that really needs to earn every dollar and just you know make it work. So. Early on for us, it was, you know, those initial conversations with, with your very first customers where you're going to go, all right, we want to like, charge you for this software. You got to come up with a price, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a harrowing process. But then to see customers actually say, yes, we want to pay you this. This is valuable. And seeing them continue to engage with the product and, and, um, it was probably like after a year of having paying customers and seeing that they actually renewed that you're right. like, all right, well, there's clearly something here. But, you know, even after getting those first couple of customers, it's like, are these, we spent a lot of time with them. We like held their hands a ton. Is this scalable? Are we going to be able to find broader market fit here? There's a, there's a lot of doubt in those early days. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's not just about users. If you're creating a, a software product that like anyone can kind of use, because users can be, yeah, you can do anything. Anyone that's seen um, Silicon Valley, um, you know, have, did you watch Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's not just about getting users. It's about retention and actually have them continue to use it and being able to continue to see sort of, you know, how they're using it. And yeah, pricing is always very tricky because it can't just be like however much they're willing to pay. You actually have to equate that value to something. Um, so that, yeah, that must be very tricky. Any any other lessons? Well, in the beginning from, though, it is kind of an exercise of like, how much do you want to pay? Right. You know, I mean, you're trying to price this product that has no precedent in the market, and um, yeah, it's it's wild, but it is. You're kind of pulling numbers out of a out of a hat. Right. Uh, I'd say the other the other piece on users, like an example with with both ways and biases and 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 Crowdflower Figure Eight, we engaged a lot with the academic community, um, and. There's, you're not monetizing that community. There's like no, like you might be able to get a university to pay a little bit for the software, but the amount of like work and pain you're gonna have to go through to get that done is a lot and not worth it. And then you you might be able to get a handful of the academics to pay for the software, but the dollars are gonna be like really small and it, you know, they have pretty tight budgets and, and don't, generally want to to pay for software but uh we always would invest in that community because we knew that if you're doing this 
work in academia, eventually you're going to get a job in industry and you'll want to use the, the tools that helped you do your best work in academia and kind of, you know, hopefully bring us along. Um, but the end goal of the business is always like to close those larger deals with the various enterprises. So you've got to be really uh, smart about how you, how you do that. And there is some tension between like, all right, let's give as much of this away for free while also being able to monetize for industry. Right, because the value that you get from people using your software um, you know, figuring out what breaks, what doesn't break, what people are getting, what people are getting value from. That's invalid. Like that's that's invaluable. But you also don't want to just. You can't just like give it away for. You can't give it away forever, right? At at some point, there's it's a business. It's there's a certain bottom line that you have to start. You know, collecting some some sort of fee. Um, but it's very interesting. You mentioned sort of like in the beginning, you were doing things that were more co like almost consultative. So like when you were small, you were doing things that didn't necessarily scale. But did you know, like at the time, that that was sort of the case and that in hopes that one day you'd be able to reach a point where it would? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the beginning, it's just like you're trying to get anyone who will engage to continue engaging. So it, that was like priceless. Like, yes, the founders will drive down to uh, Mountain View every week to like meet with the team at Toyota. That's that's invaluable. Right. Um, now we can't keep doing that forever, but it was right for us to do it. And I, I think of it less as like consultative is a, that's, that's something as an entrepreneur, you always need to be like really careful with because you don't want to make a consulting company that's building kind of bespoke things for different people where there isn't a central like platform or service that can right. um, have the benefits of, of scale across many, many, many different customers. So. We were, you know, working very closely and addressing specific problems that they were having, but always stepping back and saying, like, hey, is this generally useful? Will this also be something that someone working in this other space could benefit from when deciding whether or not we actually productized it and, and put it into the, the product? Um, at my previous company, Crowdflower Figure 8, that was helping customers generate labeled data sets for their machine learning model efforts that would often turn into actual consulting, which was really hard, where right. like we're using our own software on behalf of the customer, or we're going deep into their specific use cases and helping them design. And um, that, that makes for you know, a very different business dynamic than just selling a, a software license. Yeah, I think that's because annotate, getting annotated data is so much harder than people think it is, um, because it's not just like oh get good get good data like right what you were saying earlier like what does good mean right you need to create a set of annotation instructions you need to create the tooling around it and you actually have to like know somehow like if you're collecting it and then often this task it won't even be objective right there'll be some subjective nature to it and there'll be like this you know low interannotator agreement so how do you even measure if you're getting good data so i'm sure there were so many challenges there but yet such an important problem, uh, such an important thing to, to try to try to solve and way ahead of like way ahead of the game, you know, like that was back in 2007, 2008. I mean, thinking about the data centric, you know, movement that's taken place over the last few years, like you, you knew that a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, we were definitely too early to, to market with that first company, but we 
learned a ton and uh, got to work with a, a ton of uh, really impressive machine learning teams over the years. So I wouldn't yeah. take it back. But that's good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you get to I learn kinda, about I see some of the like problems. how well scale has done, which started like ten years after we started, and think like, oh, if we had just timed our go to market a little differently. But no, they they're awesome. They've executed yeah. amazingly. Yeah, the timing of things, there is a certain, I never like using the term luck, but there is a certain luck to timing, especially for entrepreneurship. You have to be excited in developing this thing at, at the right time when other people are, where some amount of people are ready for it, at least, right? You need to have some, some customer base. I think that when it comes to creating SaaS in a tech company, um, you you have a team filled with you know forward thinkers, and that's not necessarily who the buyer is. Right at a company, it might not necessarily be the most forward thinker. Um, they might be a little bit more on the conservative side, not willing to take certain risks. And then you have to try to show them value, which can be really tough. Um, yeah just thinking about some things and the challenges of entrepreneurship but also that's what makes it fun and then you combine it with machine learning it makes it even more fun there you go um, yeah so in your you know career well first off you've, you've you've had some of the best titles i have to say chief awesome officer at one point just your name or your initials at another point pretty cool um any other really cool ones? Uh, yeah, I think Chief Awesome Officer I just put on LinkedIn for fun. Oh, okay. Um, but CAO, it's got a nice ring to it. Yeah. It does have a nice ring CVP, to it. CVP, that's my personal favorite because it's my initials. It could also mean corporate vice president. Yep. Uh, yeah, titles are, they're, it's a title. I, I suppose there, I like having a C title, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, my title is co-founder, really, I like at it. the end of the day. And that's one of the things I love most about the job is that I'll get kind of brought into anything at any time and can be uh, really versatile and, and just, you know, try to solve problems pragmatically. Um, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's just about solving problems, so they get to bring you. They get to bring you in to solve to solve problems. Fixer, um, you're the fixer, yeah. the closer, the fixer, mm -hmm. both of them. Um, I'll give you this one. What's one piece of advice that you that you um, would give yourself, or you wish you received twenty years ago, oh, fifteen years all right. ago? This is this is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, find a hobby. Hmm. Okay. I think, and this is something I had, like other friends had told me, like, yeah, I should do this. And as, especially as an entrepreneur, it's always just like, well, there's not a lot of time. Like my hobby is this project. And I've definitely found that there's, there's only so far that that, that goes before you're just kind of burnt out. And now you're, you're like worse off than hmm. if you had just spent your 10, 20 hours of free time last week doing something else that you're interested in or excited about. Um, so 
any hobbies have, that have you want to share? Exciting, interesting on the side. Uh, the sad part is I like still don't have a great hobby. Uh, so, so you wish that somebody gave you that advice, I guess. That's yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That's that's like legit advice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the regulars. I enjoy reading. I enjoy long walks, uh, traveling. But I don't think any of those quite qualify as a hobby. I'm thinking I should go to the clay studio and and throw some clay or or go weld some metal together or something. But you know, I was gonna say something maybe in the in the art realm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The final and the juiciest of questions. Um, what has a career in machine learning and entrepreneurship taught you about life? Oh man. Uh, well, I'd say the the entrepreneurship part has taught me that there's the the business. There's this like idea the the customer, all of these things we think about when we think about the kinds of problems you're going to have to like deal with within a company. The thing that I never thought about that much, but is actually what I found to be the most important is the, the people within the company that you're creating, right? You're, you're hiring a bunch of folks to work on a problem. Um, but each of those individuals is is another person with their own problems, own stuff going on. And the only way the organization is gonna be effective is if the the people within it feel respected and treated as, as humans with dignity and and you know, there's 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 not like some magic formula of like, oh, this is what you do such that everyone in your company will now be seen as their full and true self. But it is I think it's something important, especially as an entrepreneur, as a leader in the company, to think about and and to um, try to engage with as many people in the organization as human beings um, as possible. Uh, that's definitely a, a lesson. I think the other piece that I've learned in doing this over the years is that I could still find that joy, that happiness of imagining how to solve a problem and going out and and solving it that being a creator um that's that's one of the aspects of entrepreneurship that i love the most uh and it's been just amazing even over the last like six months to go and and experiment with these new language models and see what kind of of just side projects and tools that that I can create. And I still have that same joy I had like as a teenager when I made my first website. And um, that's been, that's been awesome. And just continuing to learn and to to build. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Um, For people that are interested in learning more about you or some of the work that you're doing at Weights and Biases, where where would you uh, direct them? Uh, well, WB.com has uh, information about the product itself and the company. Uh, there's also really cool links to different uh, what we call reports in the Weights and Biases platform, which can be bits of research or analysis or leveraging um, some of the new large language model stuff we were talking about today that's, that's really good content. We have a YouTube channel 
Um, and we're on Twitter, LinkedIn. Those are our, our primary social media outlets. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter, at Van Pelt. Ping me, hit me up. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, this has been absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you so much for the incredible work that you're doing at Weights and Biases. Uh, thanks for letting me pick your brain for a little bit. You bet. This is fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Learning from Machine Learning. On this episode, we delved into the experiences of Chris Van Pelt, co-founder of Weights and Biases, gaining valuable insights into the current landscape of the industry. Chris explained the pivotal role of Weights and Biases as a powerful developer tool, enabling ML engineers to navigate through the complexities of experimentation, data visualization, and model improvement. His candid reflections on the challenges in evaluating ML models and addressing the gap between AI hype and reality offered a profound understanding of the field's intricacies. Drawing from his entrepreneurial experiences co-founding two machine learning companies, Chris leaves us with lessons in resilience, innovation, and a deep appreciation for the human dimension within the tech landscape. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, keep on learning.